Good morning, church, and Happy New Year. Um, it's just great. I just want to express my gratitude again to the Lord and to the church. I mean, I think it's an incredible privilege I get to bring the word to the church family that I love so much. And we'll be back in the book of Mark today. And uh, we took a pause back in June or at the end of June last year. And we'll be starting up at chapter 9. And so if you're a guest, generally what we do is we, have a, we sequentially go through the Bible. We'll, we'll have a book in the Bible. This happens to be the book of Mark. And we'll go verse by verse. And we'll teach and preach what God is saying to us through his word. That's called sequential exposition. Now for the sermon. The sermon is titled, Resolved for Eternity. Resolve for eternity. Everyone is going to die. Matter of fact, we're all dying. It's, we're all in the process of dying. From Luke 16, as Brother Ed read, whether you're rich or poor, good or evil, we're all going to die. This is a 100% certainty that we're all going to die. And as we walk through the gates of death, we're all going to walk into our eternal home. In one of two places, either in heaven with God or in hell apart from God. Clearly, the Lord talks about heaven and hell. And it's interesting as I looked at this portion, this is a strong word that God has for the 12 disciples and years later to us now, 2,000 years later. And I believe that the Lord was preparing the disciples and us for eternity. So a little bit of context as we turn to Mark chapter 9. The disciples, the 12 disciples needed to be refocused. They're talking about things that didn't matter. I mean, they're arguing after Jesus told them that he would die and resurrect for the sins of the world. They're arguing who's going to be the greatest of the 12. They're worried about these things, these worldly comparisons. So he knew, the Lord knew, they needed to be resolved for eternity. They needed to be fixed on eternity. They need to, in other words, live for eternity. So he has a hard word for the 12. And he expresses what matters the most to them. And he basically is, is telling them, stop quarreling over the things of today. Get your eyes into heaven. And there is a hell as well. So if you're thinking, is that true? Maybe your visitor, your guest, you're thinking, is hell a real place? Or is this kind of some of a concept or some kind of a scare tactic of, of Christians? No, this is, hell is a real place. And so we're going to start the new year by focusing on heaven and hell. And this is what the Lord has. This is providentially, this is where we're at in Mark 9. 42 to 45. So if you're able to, please rise. And if you can't, that's okay. And the reason why we rise, we do this to honor God's holy word, which has been given to us. So Mark 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 42. Jesus Christ addresses the 12 disciples. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it will be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two, two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. 
and where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. And where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word. I pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear and heed eternity in our hearts. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. I want to thank uh, Pastor Mako, Pastor Victor for preaching the last two weeks. Grateful for the encouraging sermons. And last week, one, or two weeks ago when I was off, I started just diving deeper into an old friend that I came across during a seminary. His name is Jonathan Edwards, and some of you have heard about him. And our seminary uh, takes a portion, talk about church history. And if you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, we'll find out a little bit more today. He was a pastor, theologian, evangelist, philosopher during the colonial days in the 1700s in the United States of America. Who was Jonathan Edwards? Perhaps Jonathan Edwards was the premier theologian born on American soil. And God providentially placed Jonathan Edwards at the epicenter, at the center of the Great Awakening. What is the Great Awakening? This is a huge revival that took place in the colonies where large percentage of the people were coming to Christ, they were repenting of sins, they were born again, people and evidence was happening. And what set this uh, revival off was on Ju July 8th, 1741. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon that ignited the Great Awakening, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. This sermon, geared toward churchgoers, woke up the dead, cold church who was into rituals and was kind of going through the motions. Their heart, their love for Christ has grown dull and the flame was low. But what this movement did was to ignite a fire for Christ. People were taking their sin more seriously and there's a deeper conviction of sin. People were repenting of their sins. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I thought to myself as I was listening to about, more about Edwards and reading things about Edwards, I was thinking, why was he the way that he was? We all want to study people from the past, even from present, whether they're great artists or performers or athletes or uh, leaders, whatever. What made them tick? Edwards was a uniquely focused man. I, I, I was reminded. He, in other words, if he lived today, we'd say he was very driven. He was driven. I mean, young people hear what I'm about to say. If you're a teenager or a young adult, Edwards was converted at the age of 17, young. And a year later, he started working on 70 resolutions. We have New Year's resolutions, but he had 70 lifelong resolutions. What are these? These are basically 70 uncompromising principles that he decided to live by no matter what, all his life. So between 18 and 19 years of age, he knew exactly what he was all about. And the, the essence of this whole 70 
resolutions that he wants to live for God's glory. Think about that. If you're a young person today and you have this conviction, I want to live for the glory of Christ, and everything that I do is geared toward that, how I eat, how I sleep, how I drink, how I study, how I go to school, how to, what career do I pick, what woman or man should I marry, everything is geared towards the glory of Christ. This was Edwards. Certainly we're not to, for beyond our teenage years, we could resolve to live for the glory of Christ. But this man was a very uniquely gifted man in this way. And because of that, he owned a great sense of urgency. He didn't go through life thinking, okay, I'm going to just live this portion out, go cruise control. I mean, from 17, 18, 19, 20, he was living as if today is going to be his last day. He had a, an eternal mindset. And time was very important to him. He treasured time greatly. He believed that you could lose your money. You could lo even lose your health. But potentially you could recover those things. And that's a true statement. Potentially you could recover from health. Potentially you could recover from financial disaster. However, if you lost your time, you could never get that back. That's absolutely true. Therefore, he carefully measured his days, measured his hours and, and, and years. This is how he lived. And he treasured these things. And let me give you some illustrations of how he spoke. Resolution number six. And you can find this online. Jonathan Edwards, 70 resolutions. It, it's very helpful. Resolution number six. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolution number seven. Resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. He lived as if every day was his last uh, day. Resolution number 17. Resolved that I will live as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. He wrote this at 18 and 19. He died at the age of 54. Resolution 19. Resolved again. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expect to hear the final trumpet sound as if God himself will come back right now, never to live in a way that he would be shameful of. I mean, this is an eternal mindset this man had. And he was preparing to enter eternity every day of his life. Do we think like this, church? Or is it just kind of just for those freaks, you know, the unique people of our time. G granted, he was gifted intellectually, and he grew up under a faithful pastor as, a, as his father. But do we have this sense of urgency to live our lives like as if we're going to see God tomorrow? See, the 12 disciples, although they're staring at God every day for three years, they're distracted. They're thinking about worldly things. They needed to have an injection of urgency into their veins. And they need to live with eternity right on the horizon. They're fighting for things that wouldn't matter in eternity. And the Lord was teaching them what's going to matter. And to the 12, he's basically saying, be resolved for eternity. The language in these next portions are going to speak about this. He's also the Lord is speaking to us today, too. Are we living with eternity right on the horizon? So let's go to point number one. 
The Lord says, be resolved for eternity by protecting Christ's body. Are we resolved to protect one another from sin? Verse 42 says this, and whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Who are these little ones? These are young Christians. It could be a young person, could be a child, or it could be a 90-year-old person who come to Christ late in life. This is a young Christian who, where faith is still being developed and formed, but they have a childlike faith. They believe, they trust, they're, they're impressionable. Please tell me more, Father. Please tell me more, Mom. Please tell me more, your classmate may be saying. I mean, the children we are very careful with. I mean, any of us who have young children or have had young children or grandchildren, you're basically saying, don't talk to strangers, right? Don't open the door if you don't know who's at the door, right? I remember stories when growing up in camp where people tried to take some of our campers away. It was crazy. Thankfully, we had loving counselors to intercede and get in the way, but this is what children need. They need protection. They need care. And what does it mean to cause to stumble, the Christian life is called a walk, meaning a Christian or a disciple of Christ is one who follows Christ. So if you're following Christ, you're walking with Christ. You're just following wherever he goes. To stumble is the opposite. That means you stop following Christ, you're in sin, and he's, he's going this way while you're on the ground. So to cause someone to stumble means that you cause them to scandalize their faith. Scandalizo is the original word. You cause them to scandalize or you tempt them. You, you entice them to stop following Christ. So guess, sin is this. Sin is basically when we go against God. It could be a bad thought. It could be a bad motive. It could be bad words. It could be bad actions. All these things are considered sin. And God says sin is serious right here. So how serious is the warning that that the 12 disciples get? Well, it's a matter of life and death. This is basically, the Lord says, it's better to have a huge millstone. Millstones are huge stones back then used to grind grain to make them into wheat. And powerful donkeys and, and livestock would push these uh, huge, massive stones with a hole in it or you pour the grain to be hung on your neck and thrown into the sea. It's better that you would be drowned a horrible death out of sight, out of mind forever into the sea than to cause a little child of God to stumble, to stop following Christ. This is serious. What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about God? Yes, it's a warning to the disciples and to us, but what does this tell us about God? tells us that God deeply cares for his children, doesn't it? I mean, he, he cares. If anybody did anything to your child, hopefully, dads, there, there's, there's, there's some reaction in your inner being. And hopefully, you do something to protect your children, right? That, that's the idea. God is no different. Matter of he's a perfect father who cares for us deeply. Who comes to mind right now? as we talk about little ones. So what baby Christians or younger Christians come to mind? So someone, a brother or sister who knows less than you, 
Someone who God has providentially placed under your influence. Who comes to mind? I mean, if you're a parent, certainly your children should come to mind. I mean, think about it, though. Think about, let's apply a little bit of Edward's urgency and time. If you're a parent of a young child, you will never get that time back if you squander that time with them. You'll never get that back. You'll never get that time. I know it's the most exhausting time, stressful time. Perhaps it's stressful in the marriage because there's so much. There's so many burdens. And you're like, we get that. I've been there. I'm still there. So we, my wife and I totally understand that. But just keep perspective. I will never get this year or two years back. The influence that I have to speak into their lives, the influence to enjoy them, the influence to opportunity to enjoy me, will never get back. That's true. That's true. I've had, thankfully, I've had older men speak into my life who perhaps maybe squandered some of those years and say, Rocky, do differently than I have. Don't, don't chase after this thing. Don't chase after that. Focus on these things. Other opportunities may be there later on. Focus on caring for these guys right now. I'm so grateful for these older men sharing their scars with me and just going like, you know what, you're right. That makes sense. Perhaps right now you're walking through with an aging parent right now who's come to Christ after you and, you know, it could be hard. They could be irrational at times, but they're baby Christians. Although they may be 80, 90 years old, they're baby Christians. Don't cause them to stumble. Be patient. This is the mind that God wants us to have. Whether it's a coworker or a teammate or a classmate, you'll never get that time back with them again. And how do you cause children to stumble? Well, here's some thoughts. There's multiple ways. You could actually encourage people to sin by tempting them, by leaning people towards going against God. I mean, let me just give a sober reminder to the brothers in this room. If you have a girlfriend... Keep in mind, this is the child of God that you are involved with. Keep in mind that God sees this as a very serious thing. If you cause her to stumble, entice her to sin, heed this warning very seriously. You can live a hypocritical life. Fathers, are you a genuine believer at home as you are at church and at work? Being a hypocrite discourages people who see us from thinking, is this Christianity thing real? Is Christ actually real? You could give misinformation in your counseling as you're counseling a brother or sister and they're in sin. Certainly, you're not saying don't worry about it and apply some kind of a hyper-grace theology where, uh, it's fine. Of course there's grace, but what are we going to do to repent of this? How can we help you move forward from this? Right? How can we help you reconcile? This is the issue here. So there's a variety of ways to cause people to stumble. So at Evergreen Baptist Church, let's be resolved to protect one another. This is what church is about. We're in a family here. We are part of something much bigger than ourselves. We're part of the body of Christ where we cause each other, we create each other. Big brother, little brother, big sister, little sister. This is how we care for each other. Let's protect one another. Let's encourage one another to live for Christ. Going back to Edwards, I told you I spent some time with him. And going back to Edwards, 
he believed this. This, is, this. this next resolve might shock some of us, but caused me to think twice when I read this again. Edwards believed that this, at one point in time, on the face of the planet, there was either one man or one woman that was the most complete Christian in every era and every time, meaning the most complete, the holiest man or woman on the planet. There had to be one, he believed. And Resolution 63, penned on July 3rd, 1723, as a teenager, he wrote, resolved to be the one for his time. He wanted to be the most complete Christian, the holiest man on the planet while he lived. And how does that hit you? Is that like ridiculous? Does that sound arrogant? Does that sound audacious? Like who could, who would even mouth these things, right? He wrote it on paper. It's interesting as I think about this, the disciples were arguing who is the greatest and they're fighting amongst each other. No one gets a belt or a title that says, I'm the most holiest man on the planet. This is between him and Edwards. This is not something where he compared himself with other people. This man was steeped in God's glory. He was determined to live for God's glory. And the preamble or the intro to these resolutions is helpful because he says it's only by God's grace. And if any of these resolutions are not agreeable to God, he, he doesn't want it. So he knew it was up to God's grace and it was really for God's glory. But what a great resolve to have. I want to be the most spiritually fit man or woman on the planet so I could glorify God to the max. And I asked this question for our church. Why not you? Why not you? They say this. I've heard it said in the class, if you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. Right? If you aim at nothing, if you have no plans for your sanctification, randomly, you're going to hit nothing every time. Why not have a target like that? So in some ways, if any of our children said, I want to be the best point guard ever to live, I want to be the best architect ever to live, you might say, man, that's amazing, that's great. But what a goal to have mine to be the most sanctified man to bring God maximum glory as long as you shall live. And this next point, I believe the Lord is leaning into that thought here. Point number two, be resolved for eternity by prioritizing Christ-likeness. Prioritizing Christ-likeness. Let me read verse 42, I mean 43. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. So the Lord turns the focus on the little ones to the disciples now. All right, now, you heard me. We should take care of the little ones. But what about yourself? What are your hands, your feet, your eyes doing to you? We could be our worst enemies now. We know this. Uh, Christian doctrine, Christian theology, guess if you're new to and just exploring Christianity, we believe that Christ Jesus dying on the cross saves us from our sins. And if we repent and trust in him as our Lord and Savior, our sins are forgiven. Amen? Forever and ever. That's exactly the truth. However, although we may be saved as long as we live on this earth, the fight against sin is till the day we die. Although we're new creation and we're born again, we're still battling this body, this flesh, this sinful flesh that we live in. And what does the Lord say? What is his treatment plan? Cut it off. Gouge it out. 
It's like cancer or gangrene. Cut it off. It's better to lose a part than to your whole body to die. And just want to make sure we're understanding. This is hyperbolic language, church, meaning God is not literal in his commands here to cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge us an eyeball because I see a lot more wheelchairs in this audience if we needed that. I, I myself would have been standing on one foot right here with one hand and need help to turn the pages here or have one eyeball. All of us would be gouging out our eyes. All of us would be cutting off our hand or our feet. It's, the Lord is not being uh, literal here. However, he's very serious. God deeply cares about our sanctification. And so the war on sin has been won at the cross. The war has already been won. However, the battle is still on. Salvation is a free gift paid fully by Christ on the cross. However, sanctification is a lifelong fight. That's the, that's the tension within all of us that tempts us to not follow Christ and stumble. And, and, and the spirit, our inner man, energized by the Holy Spirit that tells us to keep walking with Christ. So we need to be very clear, church. What is the goal of life? Is the goal of life to live life to its fullest? No, clearly not. The goal of life is to be Christ-like, to be as Christ-like as possible, just like Edwards, to be the most complete Christian that you possibly can be so that you could bring God the maximum glory. In, In other words, Christ Jesus, he paid a lot on the cross, did he not? He paid the highest price for all of us who are in Christ, who are headed towards heaven on the cross. You know what? He wants to get what he paid for right now. Right? Think about it. If you paid good money, you invested well, he wants to get what he he paid for through us right now. And look at this aggressive posture that other uh, people in the scriptures talked about. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, I discipline my body. I beat up my body. I train my body and make it my slave. I crucify the flesh in Galatians 5. He says, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.1, I put aside sin, deceit, malice, hypocrisy, envy. I put that aside. The author of Hebrews who talks about a runner says, I lay aside everything, every weight, every sin that trap, uh, trips me up and I keep running with uh, the race with Christ, with endurance. I mean, this is an aggressive mindset. I'm getting rid of things. They don't use the same words as cutting off, but they mean the same things. So what do you need to cut off? What do you need to cut off? In other words, what do you need to sacrifice to the Lord? What are your hands causing you to do that cause you to stumble? Where are your feet taking you where it causes you to be tempted or to stumble? What are your eyes looking at that corrupts your mind and your heart? In other words, what is scandalizing your faith? If it's a sinful thing, you need to do it immediately. Address it right now. Resolve to end it right now if it's a clearly sinful thing. If it's a good or neutral thing, these things to cause us to stumble, you need to think to yourself, is this helping me grow like, to become more like Christ? Is this helping? Let me read your resolution number 12 by Edwards. Resolved, if I take delight in it as a gratification of pride or vanity or any such account, 
immediately to throw it by. Immediately. And that's a helpful thing because as we address things and the spirit pricks our conscience to act on it. You don't want dull the conscience. You want to have a cultivate a sensitive conscience where you know you need to kind of move on from this relationship, from this ministry, from this sport, from fantasy, whatever. And you watch, you're following so many stats, you have no time to read the Bible. Maybe it's time to push pause on those things, right? Netflix, whatever it may be. These, a lot of these things are neutral, not necessarily evil in itself, but they're keeping me from looking into the Lord. This next portion of this point, I was drawn to uh, this past week. We went to Joshua Tree and we drove up to the National Park and we wanted to go up to the peak to see the sunset, but also see the stars. And from up there, you could see the Coachella Valley. It was freezing, it was cold. But you could see some of the sun coming up. It was a little bit cloudy day and we're hoping to see some stars. But on a clear day, you could see the valley. You could see Palm Springs and all that way out there. You can see the sun set in, the, in a beautiful, radiant way. And then when the sun goes down, you can see the stars. And I think this is what the Lord is doing to the disciples, to the 12. He's doing this for us. He's taking us higher and giving us a higher view to have right perspective. And this is what, what, what we need to do to have right perspective. He basically gives the disciples two options. Cut off your hand and enjoy all the life that you could get. And then when you die, you go to hell. That's option number one. Or option number two, cut off your hand, cut off that activity, enter into the life, the abundant life, the regenerate life, the born again life, the heavenly life with only one hand and enter into heaven. What do you guys think? I mean, these are very, whether it's the foot or the eye, and he says it's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. The Lord talks about hell three times, verse 43, verse 45, and verse 47, hell. This word for hell is Gehenna. And Gehenna would have brought up an image of a garbage dump that was burning outside of Jerusalem. This is where they threw all their trash. They threw their dead carcasses away. They even threw criminals' dead bodies to be burned up in this trash heap. Revelation 20 talks about hell as the lake of fire. Revelation 20 talks about people who are thrown into the lake of fire to have bodies that will live forever. So not only do Christians get new bodies, people who are thrown into hell are given brand new bodies so they could experience hell forever. According to Luke 16, it's a conscious reality. The rich man who was thrown into hell understood clearly what was going on. He understood how miserable he was. He was begging God to have mercy. So just in a moment of, of, of reprieve from the hell that they're going through. This is not, as some people think, that's annihilationism where you just disintegrate. You don't understand what's going on. You clearly understand what's happening in hell. And what is hell like? Verse 48 says this, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The Lord Jesus uses Isaiah 66, 24 to, to explain what hell is like. What does it mean where the worm does not die? 
What happens to bodies when they die and they're left outside? What have you seen on the side of the road? If you're gardening and you see animals and you got to throw bodies and you throw them into the trash, what do you see? You see flies that have infested them and you see maggots crawling over their bodies. And so when it says the word a worm does not, not, not die, let's talk about internal torment where your body, if you're headed towards hell, is thrown into hell where the worms are tormenting you from the inside out. And your body, since you've been given an indestructible body, you're going to experience that forever where you're hoping that your body disintegrates. But your body is experiencing this, this inner torment, whether it's your inner thought life that is tormenting you, thinking, I should have listened. I should have followed the Lord. And where the fire is not quenched, let's talk about external torment where the, your body is taking on this amazing level of heat of torture and punishment, excruciating physical pain. You're burned up from the outside. So what is hell like? Hell is eternal punishment from the inside and out. This is what it is. And this is what the Lord says to the 12. Don't worry about these worldly things. You're not going to care about these things in hell. You're not going to care about this little pleasure or this this relationship or this thing in hell. Resolution 55. Look what, look what Edward said. To live, to live as if he has already seen the happiness of heaven and the torment of hell. Meaning he took time to meditate on what the scriptures had to say about heaven. Heaven to be with God. And he also took time to consider what was hell like. See, when he did that, Edwards ascended the, the Mount Everest of God as he started learning more and more and more about God. God gave him eternal perspective, an eternal mindset. Knowing that the eternal contrast raises our affections for Christ and for the gospel. It raises us when we understand the stark contrast from hell and from heaven. There's eternity a difference. question what would the rich man from Luke 16 in hell what would he give just to get one moment of time back to live for Christ's glory what would he do he just wanted one drop to, uh, uh, to, be, to relieve his tongue what would he give would he give up his fancy purple garments would he have given up that lavish lifestyle would he have given up those relationships absolutely all those sacrifices will seem like nothing trivial compared to heaven and escaping hell so church let's be resolved to pursue Christ and his holiness and then finally Third point, let's be resolved for eternity by promoting Christ. Pr promoting Christ. Verse 49 is a difficult portion, but this is what I think it means. For everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? This is very difficult. I, I, in the immediate context, in verse 43 to 48, we're talk, God, Jesus Christ is talking about sacrificing things, sacrificing your hands, your feet, your eyes. Get rid of things for me. And in the Old Testament, 
holy and sanctified sacrifices that were offered up to the Lord in, in, in a burnt offering were salted and offered up. Ezekiel 43, that portion talks about how in, in, in Leviticus as well where Old Testament sacrifices were salted and burnt up. Salt is a purifying agent. Fire is that, that disciples will undergo trials. In other words, Everyone will be salted for You and I, every Christian will have an opportunity to sacrifice something to him. Not just our money, maybe our time, maybe things that certainly that are sinful, but maybe just even good things where like, you know what, I ain't to let that go. This is tempting me too much. This is getting my eyes off of Christ. Or at least push pause on it and revisit that when you're more ready. This is what God is calling us to do, I believe. In verse 50, he says this, salt is good. Salt is good in that era for preserving, purifying, for flavoring things. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Unsalty salt is useless and thrown out. Matthew 5 says it's just thrown out. That means your witness as a Christian isn't shining very brightly, if at all. That means you're not sacrificing anything for the Lord. That means you're living for the world, living like the world. You say you're a Christian, but you don't taste salty. You say you're a Christian, but you're not preserving my holiness because you're doing what I'm doing. You say you're a Christian, but you're not purifying me. I'm not convicted of my sin. And perhaps, now I get it, we can all be grow in our grace and mercy and all that, but if people aren't confronted by your lifestyle, if people are like, they, they say a four-letter word or they're watching something and they don't kind of get provoked when you're in their presence, something might be wrong. Those are things that kind of separate us from other people, and I get that, and that's hard. But in a weird roundabout way, it shows us that we're being salty, that we're different. So verse 50 ends up saying, have salt in yourself. In other words, be salty. The Lord Jesus Christ is saying, be salty. And being salty means that you preserve holiness. You promote Christ because he's so flavorful. You make him look great by how you live, by how you sacrifice for him and for other believers. Romans 12 talks about being a living sacrifice. I believe uh, Paul revisits this idea. And to not be conformed to the world, that means don't look like the world. And that we're, knowing that we're a member of many parts of a body and we, we sacrifice for one another, we love one another, we're devoted to one another, we show honor to one another, we serve one another. And as far as it depends upon you, you make peace with one another. You, you, you try to be at peace with every single brother or sister. You contact people, you, you try to initiate these things as far as it depends upon you. See, God's using all of us Christians to promote Christ. How do we do that? By crawling on the altar as a living sacrifice. And when it gets hot, you stay there. You don't pop off. You just stay there. You just stay there. And what this communicates is that Christ is your treasure. This is what this communicates. These people cannot help but think, man, he actually believes this, doesn't he? She actually seems to believe what they are reading in the Bible, doesn't she? This is what this is talking about. You communicate to your lost friends that Christ is worth it. You, believe, you communicate that there is a heaven and there is a hell and eternity is at stake. That's why I'm not living for today. 
That's why Paul wrote in Philippians 3, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Are you satisfied with your saltiness, church? He's asking the disciples, are you satisfied with your saltiness to the 12? I mean, this is elite level of accountability, guys, that that the Lord holds for the 12. We're no different. We are disciples too. God is holding us accountable. This is high level love, high level training, high level accountability that the Lord has. Let's resolve some things then. You know, I know it's New Year's. Let's resolve, I'm just gonna suggest some three resolutions for us as a church, okay, and individually and corporately. Number one, let's find someone younger than us in the faith to encourage. Just take one. Just take one. If you have a bunch of kids, then you got all of them for sure. Okay, you got a spouse, that's, that's your one addition. Just one, just one. There's a sanctifying effect when people are counting you to be holy. It's an extra level of accountability. It helps. It helps to be a pastor, actually, for my own soul care, quite honestly. How about number two? Let's pray and think about what we could cut off that keeps us from stumbling. It could be some kind of technology, some kind of show. Certainly if it's a sinful pattern, let's Let's get some help there and move away from these scenes. Cut off any obstacles that keep, you from, that, that keep you stumbling all the time. And finally, salt yourself daily with the word of God. Find time to read God's word. Certainly the sermon is, this is where we hear it all together. Revisit the sermon, perhaps. Revisit the sermon with your family members, dads. This, if the points are all there. Revisit one point a day. How's that sound? It's all there. Just re- keep reemphasizing the same thing. It's all good. But I want to say this. If you're here as a guest, we're glad you're here. And perhaps you've been part of this church for many years. We're glad that you're here. Today, some here. If you're to die right now, maybe headed towards hell right now. Some here right now, sitting here, listening to these words, maybe headed towards hell right now if you were to die. What would your friends and relatives say to you who have died apart from Christ? What would they say if they were like the rich man right now to you right now? I think they would tell them perhaps their conversation of, God, have mercy on me. Well, it's God's response. It's too late. There's no more time. Then like the rich man, maybe they'll say, let me warn my family and friends while they have time. And if God actually granted that wish, which obviously doesn't happen, what would they say to you? It's terrible. I'm all alone. It's in the dark constantly. Inside, I'm tormented with my own thoughts. 
I just want to die, but I keep living. It's hot, and I don't know what's happening around me. I thought I used to control my destiny, but I realize I can't control anything right now. Please don't make the same mistake I did when I had time. Please don't make the same mistake. I beg you, listen to God's word right now while you still have time. God is angry with me and there's nothing that I could do about it now. While there's still time, believe that there is a hell. It's all true. Luke 16 says, if you don't respond to God's word, you won't even respond if somebody comes back from the dead and tells you these things. Because you know why? Why they said that? Because Christ came back from the dead. And Christ is speaking to you through his word right now. And if you're not listening to Christ, thus saith the Lord right now, you won't even respond if your relative came and talked to you and warned you about hell. Christ came from the dead to warn us, to tell us that salvation, to give us the good news that salvation has been won. Friend, this is the time to believe. Not tomorrow. Today is the day to believe. Believe in the gospel that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again and that you're a sinner and you want to repent and follow him for your forgiveness of your sins. Do it today. Today is the time. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to anyone. That is a reality. The Lord Jesus Christ is the good news. And while you have time, respond to his call. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this portion of scripture. Lord, we know you spoke this to the disciples because you love them dearly. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the salvation that's found in the death and resurrection of Christ. Father, will you elevate our love for you because we have a deeper knowledge of hell. As we go deeper into the knowledge of hell, I pray you raise our affections for you and for heaven. Father, I pray that for any lost people in here, that your spirit will fall upon them and they'll be born again. They will turn upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your great kindness. And thank you for the doctrine of hell that which makes the gospel much more glorious and much more beautiful and amazing. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.